Welcome to Dr. Cheryl's Podcouch, where we have mental health conversations with transparency. When you are finished listening to this episode, please rate, subscribe, and comment. Reviews are everything. Today, I am very happy to have on two authors who are both the authors, the co-authors of When Women Vote. First, we have Stephanie Donner, who has spent her career devoted to the development of women and girls. She served as Governor Hinkelooper's Chief Legal Counsel and then went on to be Chief Legal and People Officer for Galvanize, a technology education company with eight campuses across the U.S. Stephanie founded the Galvanize Foundation that exists to increase access to tech careers for women and people of color and was recognized as Nine News Leader of the Year. Then we also have her co-author, Amber Reynolds, who is one of the country's leading experts on election administration and policy. During her career, she has proven that designing pro-voter policies, voter-centric processes, and implementing technical innovations will improve the voting experience for all voters. Amber is now the executive director for the National Voted Home Institute and is the former director of elections for Denver, Colorado. During her time in Denver, the elections office was transformed into a national and international award-winning election office. Amber was also recognized as a top public official of the year by Governing Magazine for her transformational work to improve the voting experience. Currently, she is on the National Task Force for Election Crises, and Stephanie is the senior advisor at the National Voted Home Institute for the Equality Initiative. Hi, ladies. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm doing well. Oh my gosh, all your your bios were a big mouthful for me because you're both so accomplished and have so much going on. Um, And I'm excited to just dive right in. I can't think of a better time for you to have written this book. Cannot be any more timely. I need to know right off the bat, do you believe this upcoming year's election is one of the most important in history? And if so, what role could the women's vote play in the election? Well, if you take the premise of our book, we absolutely believe that this is one of the most important elections in history, but largely because we also believe that this is an opportunity for voter voter turnout to increase significantly. So in addition to what's at stake for our country and for our nation, uh, what really is also at stake is getting people to turn out and, and ensuring that all voices are heard. Our book is really about election reform and breaking down bias in the in our system, as opposed to really advocating for one person or policy at best. So there's a real strong premise throughout the book about putting voters first and focusing on who votes, not who wins. And so I think, uh, speaking for Amber, uh, Amber and I would believe that every election is is the most critical uh, for that exact premise. Okay, so so let me ask you something. I think I was a little surprised when I read the book that it wasn't just about women, um, that it was about a lot of other groups, mostly disadvantaged groups. I learned a lot. I really learned a ton. Um, and, And we will get to that. But did you know going into it that it would be beyond women voting or did that unfold as you were writing the book? Well, I would say that we knew you know, we wanted to write it from the lens of women voters, mainly because we, we are women and, and women's suffrage and the celebration and all of that was coming. But I, I think that especially being someone that was a former elections official, we know that that people very, very in a very broad way are left out of the process because of administrative deficiencies, because of bad policies, 
we know this is the case. The data shows us this. 100 million people that were eligible and registered to vote in 2016 did not vote in what at that time was also the most important election of our time. And when we when we asked them why, um, and there were various studies done on this after the fact, when the voters that did not participate, that had registered, that had actually taken steps to register to vote, but didn't vote, they cited inconvenience, missing a deadline, didn't know what their options were, didn't have the option to vote by mail. Uh, so they cited all of these issues that amount to about 40% indicating that they faced a barrier. And so we know it's not just women that we want to improve the process for. We're writing the book from that lens. But when we improve it for all women, we're also improving it for all people because we're building a more a more inclusive system. What was so interesting, though, is when we went through and we started writing it to your question is we realized that the states that had provided these multiple options and solutions for for voting convenience and reform were also the states that did have the highest women's representation. They also happened to be the states that uh, were the first to implement and, and to move for suffrage. So it was an interesting trend that we saw and one that was really important because those then also become the states that advocate for many of the policies that benefit women. You know, when you talk about equal pay or family leave or, you know, even healthcare options. Let's jump to that. That was a little bit more toward the end of your book, but I really did learn a lot about the barriers to voting. So since you mentioned that now, why don't we talk a little bit about that? Can you share with listeners and just people like myself that didn't know, you know, some, what are the, some of the top barriers? And also um, I do want to sort of time stamp. This is September of 2020. We have an important election coming up. What do people need to be thinking about in terms of people listen to this podcast all around the country, what they need to consider about their own state. So can you speak to that? So we don't have that kind of trend again for this year's election. Sure. Well, some of the barriers, I mean, really, the the voting process starts with registration. So you've got to be registered to vote. And the fact is registration laws on the books, deadlines on the books, all of that is fairly outdated. So some states require a 30 day registration requirement and residency requirement, which which is coming up. It's October 3rd. Right. So uh, we've got these sorts of barriers. A lot of people don't realize that they have to take action on making sure their address is up to date and making sure they're registered to vote that early on. Uh, and, and so that's sort of the first piece is registration reform, voter registration. We advocate for automatic registration as well as eliminating those overly burdened deadlines in the book. The second sort of step is making a plan to vote. So, you know, figuring out in your state, are you going to get a ballot automatically like what happens in in Colorado and California and Utah? Or do you have to sign up for that? And if you do have to sign up for that, taking action now is absolutely critical. And what we find is that a lot of voters miss those deadlines or don't understand what those procedures are. So, you know, looking up and there's a great website, uh, canivote.org, which is managed by the National Associations of Secretaries of State. That you can go in, put your state in, and it will tell you how to do all of those things. Finally, the sort of uh, the voter transaction, what I mean by that is registration through the act of actually voting, that entire process, that entire experience is really what we push for in the book in terms of reform, starting with registration, but going all the way through to the ballot counting. And if you do choose to vote in person, what often happens is that voters face five and six and seven hour lines. We've even seen that 
in almost every large city across the country. This year, in the middle of a pandemic, we have seen voters waiting in line for five, six, and seven hours. And when you face that kind of a barrier, you are likely to not wait, especially if you're a mom with small kids or you're a single mom that needs to get your kids home uh, after school or whatever it might be. Parents are not going to be able to wait with their kids in those kind of lines. Other people of all different demographics and races are also going to face barriers, whether they've got to get to their job or whatever it might be. So that kind of full voting transaction and how do we make it easier for people? And this is why voting at home, this is kind of how voting at home comes in, because it can deal with that in a very direct way where you have time at home to research candidates, research issues, vote with your kids like I do, all those sorts of things, that can improve the process. And we know it increases turnout. We know it solves barriers. So that kind of complete transaction, what does that whole process look like, is what we tried to focus on in the book and why it matters so greatly for voters right now, especially in the midst of the pandemic. Uh, yeah, I think you you lay that out really clearly, really well. Do you think that one day we will look back and see those lines or or you'd look back and say, oh my gosh, can you imagine there were, you know, four blocks full of people, they waited for hours. Do you think that will be some one day, a thing of the past? Well, look at Colorado. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we, Amber and I met in 2013, largely working on this legislation in Colorado. Um, her, my, me and my former capacity working for the governor and her and her former capacity running Denver elections. And you can even just see the transformation of lines here in Colorado and how it has transformed the voting experience. And, and also the fact that Colorado had the second highest voter turnout, um, in the last election. So, you know, I, I do think that there, there is real trends and data to look at in this country. And I think that history will be the predictor of future success. Who had the uh, best voter turnout in the country last election? Minnesota had the highest and Minnesota traditionally ranks at the higher level. And there's a few reasons for that, but they do have accessible vote at home options. You have to sign up, but they do have that. And they also have a have same day registration, which is what we also passed in Colorado. And that really helps eliminate those barriers. People can show up on the day of and still take care of that entire transaction. Um, yeah, I've learned so much. Minnesota also has a high number of women in elected office at the highest levels. So we also point that out in our book, which follows the trend that we've identified. Yeah. So what are your thoughts on voter fraud? We've been hearing a lot about mail-in ballots and absentee ballots and reasons to be concerned in, in alarming ways if you just saw headlines in the media. What are your thoughts on that? What are the facts around that? Well, so there's definitely a lot of misinformation floating around about, number one, vote by mail, increasing the opportunity for for voter fraud or voter fraud being a massive problem. And the fact is, if we just look at the data, so over the last 20 years of all, all ballots cast by mail, 0.0006% uh, have been flagged with some sort of issue. And for the most part, that wasn't the voter actually trying to do something incorrectly. That was a situation where a procedure failed, where maybe they didn't know that their ballot was already been accepted and they wanted to make sure their ballot counted. There's all kinds of examples of that, but it is exceedingly rare. But what is important is that just like in-person voting, which also has 
vulnerabilities, and we've seen this over time. Uh, there's been instances where, you know, votes were bought with opiates in different states. Like we have examples of this in in-person voting. And so what's really important with our election infrastructure and our systems is that we're able to deter detect and hold a bad actor accountable should they try to hurt the voting process uh, or hurt voters, which is we often more often see election fraud, meaning somebody's trying to interfere with the voters or the voting process with misinformation, throwing away ballots like what happened in North Carolina in 2018, or trying to hurt uh, a group of voters in a very particular way. We more often see those sorts of things rather than individuals trying to commit a felony because why would you as an individual commit a very harsh and get a harsh penalty on on fraudulent voting um, and face all of those uh, all of the aftermath that comes with that for simply trying to cast one ballot it doesn't really make legit like, it doesn't make logical sense so that's why deterring detecting and holding folks accountable that do try to do something is critically important so stories that I've heard um, you know around oh, you know, we're still getting things in the mail for somebody who's deceased or things like that. And so then that's an opportunity. Is that what you're counting in that 0.0006%? Does that happen in tiny portions of the population? Well, so the, the deceased one is an interesting one. So this is actually where automatic registration helps improve the the voting security of things, which is why we advocate for it in our book. Automatically updating voter records when we know about those sorts of things is critically important. And that's why Colorado has led the country on these issues. Um, But if a ballot goes out and someone dies after that ballot goes out, number one, in some states, as long as they cast the ballot and it's turned in before they actually pass, it will be counted. So that's the case in Colorado. If a ballot comes to some to a house where the voter has died before the ballot was mailed, there's still signature verification on the back end. So even though that ballot might go to the voter, that doesn't mean the ballot actually gets cast and counted. That would mean that someone would have to forge a signature, which is exceedingly difficult to do. And part of the reason why it's so low that mail ballots experience fraud is because we have protections like signature verification in place uh, to be able to determine if the voter voted their ballot and turn that in. Um, So that's how we catch those things. Just because a ballot was received at a house doesn't mean it's going to then be cast and counted. And therefore, if it's not cast and counted, you can't charge someone with voter fraud when they didn't successfully cast a ballot. Oh, interesting. One of the things that we advocate for in the book is also data sharing among states. And you know, we talk about the organization that that started this and that has done this throughout the states, but it can help track if somebody moves so that there's not multiple addresses, if where somebody is a resident. And this is a really important reform that, you know, as we say in the book, is not super sexy, but very important to ensuring that folks can only cast, will only cast one ballot. So I didn't know that that um, that the mail-in ballots really do. Do you have images of someone's original signature on file? Like how how is that verified? Yeah, so there's actually multiple signatures usually for a voter, and there's a couple of different sources of that. Motor vehicle provides one that was on your driver's license or your state ID when you get that, and then any document you've submitted to change your address or a mail ballot packet itself, or maybe you filled out a signature card at a polling place, all of that's been captured. So you as a voter might have 30 some signatures on file. Um, and, and the way that Colorado does it is there's actually training by uh, law enforcement signature verification specialists that 
give election judges uh, sort of what to look for. And then there's also actually signature verification software and equipment that does the one-to-one match. And that's actually has a, has a much higher rate of accuracy than even people doing it. Uh, so there's sort of all these processes. Every single ballot is verified and checked in through that process. So you can't get a ballot submitted without that process occurring in most states. Had no idea. So that's not a, that's not a federal thing though. That is state by state. It is state by state and the processes vary, but most states have that process in place. Some states require you to provide a copy of your ID in the envelope as opposed to the signature. So you have to provide that copy. Some require witnesses. One state still requires notaries, um, which is a whole different conversation because not everybody has access to a notary. But there are these different methods of verification in states. Gotcha. See, I'm still learning and I have already read this book. Let me go back to something that I had mentioned earlier, which is in your introduction, you mentioned inequality when it comes to voting, and you make it clear that this will be a book that is about women and also beyond it. You mentioned um, Native Americans, you mentioned homeless, you mentioned even felons, and those barriers that are there. So what what do we need to know? What does maybe the average person need to know about this? And why is this so important? I would say that what we were aiming for demonstrating, particularly in that component, is that historically, all groups, very few were actually able and eligible to vote. And as time has progressed, particularly over the last hundred years, various different groups have been given the opportunity, the access, but very few people still have the opportunity. And so, and what we also say in our book is that at every step in the way, it's like a, it's like a filter. Um, you know, every stage in the process, even before an election even starts, when you talk about primaries and who can participate and how and redistricting and all of these structural barriers that seek to, to continue to exclude people. And when you talk about homeless, I mean, they may not be able to register. They may not, if you're in an all-male ballot state, may not have a home which they can get it. They may go to actually vote and not be able to. And same with felons. I mean, we've taken some of that steps here in in Colorado and other states have as well. But I think what it speaks to, and with respect to Native Americans, it was kind of whether they were considered brown or black or when they were able to be participating in the voting process. That's really what our book talks about is is how, you know, it hasn't been a a one-size-fits-all for anybody. But mostly over time, it still is a process that excludes people before you're even thinking about it. I mean, Amber talked about how it starts at registration, and, and it does in terms of in this election cycle. But really, it's it's well before, you know, some people have already been excluded from even participating in this cycle. Yeah. And, and really on the voting transaction piece, the, those are examples of groups that have faced barriers, mainly because of logistics, right? Similar to military and overseas ballot, uh, voters that experience logistical challenges with accessing the voting process because they are so far away being on a aircraft carrier or a submarine that means you're not getting mail every day, by the way, right? So we have to make sure that we've got accessible systems for all voters, regardless of what their circumstances might be at the present moment. Uh, the felon issue is, an, is one that has been a hot topic over the last few years. Colorado also built additional systems in place and put them in place to make sure that voters that were awaiting trial or serving non-felony convictions had access, especially when they were incarcerated. And so For instance, uh, Denver pioneered a program to send election judges with all of the voting materials 
to the jails to facilitate the voting process for those individuals because they have a right to vote and they shouldn't have to rely on the sheriff's deputy to bring them their mail ballot or another person to do that. So we created a pilot program that then ended up being rolled out statewide and now mandated statewide. Same with nursing home voters. So they're another group of voters that have particular challenges, are in a very vulnerable position. We've seen stories historically where the staff might try to encourage them to vote a certain way or, you know, help them in a negative way. And so another pilot program that we started in Denver and then we mandated in our 2013 legislation is is group uh, residential facility assistance. So again, we set up a specific period of time, election judges that are bipartisan go out facilitate the voting process with accessible equipment and all of that on site at the nursing homes. And that's even another example of something that's pandemic proof because we, 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 they didn't have to worry about leaving their nursing homes and potentially exposing themselves to, to the virus in a negative way. And so that's another example of putting voters first, serving voters more effectively. Same thing with Native Americans and reservations. They have different logistical challenges that are unlike other parts of the population. And so we have to make sure we design processes that are available and accessible and equitable to all. Um, Amber, how did you, this, this is so, so complex. How did you get into this and how is, did this become your passion? Because as you're talking, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this is so intricate. I've never even thought of some of these populations. So how did this even begin for you? Sure. Well, I, um, I was always interested in politics and then did my master's actually overseas at the London School of Economics and worked on election, electoral reform, uh, as well as comparative politics, comparative political systems. So I worked for the United Kingdom Solicitor General. We did some election reform, uh, actually way back in 2002 in the UK. And then I moved back to the United States and I worked for, uh, a group called the New Voters Project in Iowa in 2004 was a, one of the state coordinators for that. And that's really what exposed me to the significant barriers that voters face with registration, access to information, all of that. And our group was nonpartisan. I was unaffiliated. I've always been unaffiliated. And we focused on students and helping students on college campuses. And I just, I was, I was, I was dismayed at the number of barriers that they faced and how complex it was even just to describe it to voters. Um, and then I applied for an ops coordinator job in Denver and started there in 2005. And, uh, Denver had a really bad governance structure, bad leadership, bad election system, and voters experienced really long lines in 2006. And after that, a lot of people got fired. Um, and the new clerk that came in met with each of us. And when she met with me, she said, you know, I really want you to be part of the change. The only part of the process that worked was mail ballots and you were in charge of it. Um, so what ideas do you have? And I pulled out a journal that I had kept for a year and a half on technical problems, policy problems, customer service problems, all of it. And I said, I've written a journal on what we can do and let's do it. And we jumped in, we redid the organization and we were able to then advance a lot of policy changes in Colorado. But the whole premise was, how do we put voters first? How do we solve the gaps, the challenges, the access issues that voters face and make it an awesome voting experience instead of one that is, is you know, ridden with barriers and challenges and confusion? Uh, so that's what we tried to do. And um, I dove in. I, I held various positions in the office, so really got a deep understanding of all of the intricacies of this of this world. I love that. I love that you that you kept a journal. I'm the biggest advocate of journaling. It, that it came true. 
you know, that you were able to realize uh, your vision in there. That's really a great story. So what do you guys both, I'm curious about both of your thoughts on this. What do you think the women before us, the brave, the strong, the women that did so much to get us our rights and insisted on it and uh, paid a lot for that. What do you think they would think about where our country is right now and voter turnouts and the fact that we have to work so hard to just get people turned out for whatever reasons, whether they're barriers or just people maybe don't feel like their vote counts. I hear that a lot. How do you think they would feel today about the way things are? Well, I think that they would both be inspired, but also somewhat disappointed. Um, I think that the fact that we are 51% of the population and we are, let's just take Congress, only 26% represented in Congress. And I think that our voter turnout is, is pretty abysmal too, when you consider that, you know, we, we celebrate, you know, barely 60% of, of, uh, turnout as a, as a success. I think the women that came before us, the suffragettes, the ones that, you know, made it so that we had the right uh, to vote, did so by changing a system from within. They worked with the men that had the right to vote in order to change it. And what I think they would be somewhat disappointed in is that perhaps we haven't all done enough together to continue to advance those systems to ensure that everybody, those that are traditionally disenfranchised and that those that continue to be, have not just the right, but the opportunities. Um, that was really the inspiration with um, with Amber's in my book. But you see it not just in, in situations of representation and voting. I mean, it bleeds into every aspect of our society. And, you know, of course, we chose to focus on women, but, you know, without women in elected office or women holding board seats or CEO seats, then you don't have that next generation of women to, to make, to truly gain that equality. Um, and, and really in part three of the book, what you'll see, Cheryl, is that we say that when there are greater women's representation, look at the states that have 50% of their state legislatures or, you know, women governors or, or two women senators and all of that, you do see more policies that are that add, that are advantageous to to women. Um, you have certain states that mandate a certain number of women on boards. Um, you have certain states that have implemented fair pay equity and and family leave uh, legislation. And and then you just have certain states that you see women running against each other for really key key critical offices. And I think the women that came before us would say that maybe we haven't done enough to fix the infrastructure that created the bias that they sought so greatly to just have the opportunity to participate in. And so while we have the right to vote, many, many women and, and, and people of color don't, don't really have the opportunity to do so. And so I think they would be inspired, but they would say we have a lot more to do. Okay, before you go, Amber, I want to hear what you have to say. I have your guys' second book in my mind. Maybe you have it too. Let's see if we're on the same page. But I think your next book is when women lead, you know, because you talk so much about that. And I think with COVID, we've seen, we've studied, we look at the other countries, who's doing better. Many of them, women are the leaders. And so if you, if you don't already have that, I hope that that will be your next book. Well, you'll appreciate this, Cheryl. We also want to do a children's book with a similar um, bent towards this, this and kind of with the civics lens. But Yes, yes, that too. That yeah. too. You got a lot of work to do. We do. We have lots of ideas on this. And I think, you know, I know that my grandmothers and my great aunt who were very inspiring to me, 
my great aunt would probably say, what have you been doing? Why is turnout so low? Why haven't you gotten this fixed yet? She'd probably say that to me right now. But you know, my daughter asked the other day, well, she, we, I, she was listening to me on a call and she said, mommy, why do you have to work so hard to help people vote? And you know, I want to, to continue to do this so that my kids and Stephanie's kids and our, all of our children don't have to face these same barriers that so many people still do. And we can do better. We know what works. It's now a matter of replicating the good policies and the good practices to advance this and move it forward. So I agree with Steph that, you know, I think they would be proud to see how many women are elected and all that. But I think they would question the same thing. Why aren't we making progress? Why have we had three years of the women and yet we still don't have many women in Congress. We've had three of those over over time. So we have to think about this differently than just more women running or donating to campaigns that are that are for women. That's important, but that's not getting to the underlying infrastructural issues that we continue to face. And we also have to do, I think, a better job of of educating the future generation about the importance of voting. So I often talk about this, but like with the mail ballot model in Colorado, my ballot comes, I sit down with my kids. It takes us a few days, I will say, but but I, they read to me the uh, names on the ballot, the offices on the ballot. They ask me questions like, what does governor do? What does mayor do? And we go through it as a family. And I am, I've, I'm convinced that I've created long-term civically-minded engaged little citizens that will understand not only about the importance of voting, but also what it means. What what does mayor do? How does that relate to my everyday life? And we have to continue to educate in that way, or we're never going to advance and make the real changes that we need to make to encourage equality for all. Yeah, and that was um, that was definitely one of the questions I was going to ask you. So maybe you can keep going with that. I, I wanted to ask how, as parents, can we best be teaching our kids right now about the importance of voting and the process, and how can we be preparing them for future leadership and um, equality and engagement in communities? So you said a couple of things, which I love that that you just simply go through the voter. The mail ballot, it comes to your home and you really go through it with them. What are other things that you guys do that we could, us laymen, can take away from this? Amber and I both do this and we do it. I mean, our, our kids sat there and watched us write this book. So, um, you know, I think doing things like bringing them, I mean, we're in COVID, so it's a little different, but taking them with us when we have speaking engagements or um, when we are participating in our community like that. I do often um, try to find opportunities to watch debates with my kids or, um, and that's, you know, engaging in the political process, but I also think engaging community, whatever, however that looks, you know, whatever your community passion is, I think Amber and I both try to do a good job of, of bringing our kids along in that. But I think one thing that's not sexy, I mean, watching a debate amongst political, um, you know, adversaries can be interesting. But when actually just talking about voting, how a bill becomes a law, why is it important? Those kinds of things, that's like your core root civics that doesn't have anything to do with whether you're red or blue or R or D or, you know, conservative or progressive or whatever you are. It just has to do with your basic opportunity as a, as a United States citizen. And that is what we really try to focus on in our book and what I think we would advocate for in terms of civics. Anything else you'd add, Amber? 
Uh, no, I think all of that is is right on. And my kids are, you know, I've even taken my kids traveling with me when I do speaking engagements. And there's a few reasons for that. Number one, I want to, but number two, you know, being being a single mom, that's just that's the reality. Sometimes they've got to go with me to certain places, and um, and they and they learn a lot. And what I what's amazing to me is they always ask a lot of questions after the fact, like, "Mom, you were saying this. What did that mean? And how does that relate to us?" And you know, so I think. I think just bringing our kids into things that are often sort of talked about as, well, that's an adult. And once you're 18, you'll do that and whatever. I'm convinced that it's the er even earlier, way earlier than high school in terms of building this curiosity around the voting process and then also civics. And, you know, when, when they see things and they, they brought this up, they didn't like one of the playgrounds we went to one day. And I said, Clara, why don't you draw what you would like the playground to look like and we'll send it to the city parks department and see what happens. And she was like, really, would they even look at it? And I'm like, well, I don't know. We can try, right. We can write a letter and try. And so I think just kind of creating that curiosity in the voting process, showing them how to make change and who has the power to make change uh, to bring some of that in, in our everyday lives. And you don't even have to be involved in the voting process to do this, right. It's, it's just, creating that that interest among them so that they ask good questions and they're curious individuals about how to improve our way of life. I was going to say that in the back of our book is a playbook and we kind of target three different audiences. But when you talk about kids, even though they're not of voting age yet, they really do fit the key components of what we say in the playbook for, for voters have a high expectations. You know, we're conditioned right now as a society to stand in line and wait to vote. That doesn't have to be the case. So have high expectations, you know, advocate for change. We say collaborate with one another, you know, just like Amber and um, and I did. And, and how, you know, one of the themes throughout the books is how women organize and collaborate. Every single one of the women, whether it was the suffragettes or the characters of the book, they had their own various Tuesday clubs. Um, but, you know, even get involved. I mean, this is what we say for voters. This is the same thing for kids. Yeah, yeah that's a great point. I did want to point that out. That's so great. It ends with what feels like a bonus, which is a, a playbook. And you have three different categories of people. I love that. So I have one final question for you. I don't know if this is a two minute answer or not. But sometimes when my kids ask me about the Electoral College and, you know, how in the last election could one candidate have won the popular vote, but then not, but not one. It's hard for me to give them an answer that I, that I feel even confident saying and, and, or that they leave feeling like they understand. So how would you explain that to anybody, including your kids? How, what's, what's a brief way of explaining that and how this happened? So this is definitely beyond the scope of our book. So we yes. did not address this. Um, yes, you did not. That's true. And, and I think there's interesting research should be done in the future as to whether or not this plays a role in women's participation and representation. I don't think we did not even broach that because it's not really part of the election experience, the voting experience. But, you know, I think one easy way to explain the electoral college and why 
it's its existence or it's um, or doing away with it is just not that simple is because it is based on ensuring that less populated areas of our country also have a voice because we are we are concentrated in population centers. So when you see someone win a popular vote, it's largely because they won large population centers, big cities uh, that tend to kind of vote in a similar manner. And without an electoral college or something similar to balance or weight out, you would find more rural states like Idaho or Montana that almost just don't matter. And so you would end up having these large population centers invariably always making the uh, decision for the rest of the country. So whether the electoral college is the right answer or whether the way the framers of our constitution set it up is perfect for today's day and age, there does have to be a consideration for how rural America and those that are not in huge population centers, their voice can be weighted and heard. And in today's day and age, that happens largely through the Electoral College. And I don't know if Amber wants to add. Yeah, I think I would just add that, um, you know, voters feeling confident that their vote matters is a really important part of, of trust, right? Trust in the process, trust that it was counted correctly. And so I think that there's, you know, if, you, if you're a voter in a big city and your vote, your vote doesn't matter as much as a rural state because you don't live in a rural state is, is a challenge for them. And then same with that rural community. I mean, my parents live in a very small town in Illinois. Illinois, it matters what Chicago does. Like that is the fact, that is a reality. It doesn't surprise me that turnout is less in smaller parts of the state because they think their voice doesn't matter. And in the book, we interviewed a woman uh, as well in Texas in, in a very blue area. She was a Republican. She feels that she has no voice in the primary process because they don't have open primaries, right? So that's a whole thing with regards to the primary process that impacts people's a feeling about their voice mattering. And this is a really important thing that I think is, it, it's very complicated to solve. I think the electoral college in its current form needs reform. So maybe it doesn't work as it was anticipated um, when, when our country was founded. Um, so we have to talk about that. We have to figure out how do we fill these gaps? How do we ensure that all voters feel like their voice matters. And that's really the debate at hand. And I, and I agree with Steph, there needs to be a lot more research done on the impacts, the broad impacts of this. There's been a lot done and, and there are definitely bipartisan groups that support electoral college reform that are that's right today. And what's interesting is there was a lot more Republicans that pushed for this years ago than do today, right? So there's also this question of depending on who won or lost, that's why we always say it should be about who votes, not who wins. It's interesting how you see the change in the dynamic of who supports what based on who might have power right now. But Cheryl, it's also really interesting if you it goes back to some election reforms as well. And I think like in our book, we bend over backwards to be um, hypercritical of both parties, because I think that's what we truly believe when it comes down to putting voters first. Um, that folks are excluded at every stage, not just because of the infrastructure, but because of our party system. But when you look at the electoral college, you know, it, it does support a two party system. But if you went to voting like ranked choice, which we also advocate for in our book and other kinds of voting, 
you, it would be interesting to see through a bipartisan research effort if the electoral college becomes as important over time because you use different voting methods that don't necessarily require political parties to put forth um, candidates necessarily, um, or at least they do so differently. So, you know, when you, you municipal elections throughout the country are actually a really great testing ground for how this kind of works. And so I think the discussion of electoral college is much broader and comes right back to how we vote. So well said. I know that this was really helpful for me and I know it's going to be really helpful for others. I hope that we will all inspire each other. Um, I know right before this interview, I sent my 23-year-old cousin a text that said, because she's not in her home state, are you registered to vote in all caps? And so I'm seeing that a lot on the top social media. I feel like when I click on different places, it's like, are you registered to vote? So something's happening there. Um, I'm really glad you addressed this electoral college. I, I appreciate it wasn't in your book, but I, to me, it does impact voting because I just hear it so often. Well, my vote doesn't count anyway. What does it matter? And so I feel like we need a really good, simple answer to here's why it matters. So Thank you so much for writing uh, When Women Vote. I think it's so important. And um, thank you for the work that you're doing on behalf of our entire community and really our entire country. So I appreciate everything you're doing. Thanks for having us, Cheryl. It's really great to be here. Thank you. So thank you for listening to this episode of my podcast. Please rate and review this episode and share with anyone who you think would benefit from it. To stay connected, please subscribe. Episodes are released every two weeks.